In 207 BC, the Qin Dynasty, with its capital at Xianyang in the Wei River Valley, was teetering on the verge of collapse. Just two decades prior, the King of Qin had launched a series of eastward offensives to conquer the six main eastern states in quick succession, ending the chaotic but highly consequential Warring States period in Chinese history. After conquering the rest of China, the King of Qin created a new title for himself, Huangdi, translated into English as Emperor, thus becoming the first emperor in Chinese history. He styled himself Qin Shi Huangdi. Or literally, the Qin First Emperor. Although he is now typically referred to by a shortened version of his title, Qin Shi Huang, the First Emperor ruled over a unified China from 221 BC to 210 BC from Xianyang, the predecessor to the city of Chang'an, modern-day Xi'an. Under the rule of the First Emperor, the core territories of the state of Qin in the Wei River Valley, also known as Guanzhong, literally the land inside the passes, was administered as a special capital district, while the rest of the empire was divided into approximately 40 subdivisions named Jun, translated into English as commanderies. This high level of centralization across large territories to rule over diverse peoples with very different cultures and languages was completely unprecedented in Chinese history. Qin Shi Huang was a micromanaging workaholic who received direct reports from the governors of the commanderies to keep up to date with the latest local developments. An ancient geographical concept that was especially relevant during this time period is that of Shandong, meaning east of the mountain, and Shanxi, meaning west of the mountain. They do not refer to the modern-day Shandong and Shanxi provinces, and instead are in reference to the Xiao Mountains that separate Guanzhong from the rest of China. Shandong mostly consisted of recently conquered territories, whereas Shanxi mostly consisted of the core Qin territories. To maintain the unity of his empire across such large distances, especially in Shandong, Qin Shi Huang instituted a number of drastic measures, including the construction of a wide network of roads centered around Xianyang with government-run stage stations at regular intervals, the creation of a standardized writing script to replace the previous hodgepodge of regional writing scripts, as well as a standardization of weights and measures across his empire. He continued to expand his empire, including conquering Lingnan in what is now deep southern China for the first time in history, and stationing an army 300,000 strong in Hetao, the great northern bend of the Yellow River, to defend against the nomadic Xiongnu. The pen and the sword have been the traditional tools of rebels, and Qin Shi Huang took measures against both. He burned books, including the historical records of the conquered states, and brought a large number of the remaining books back to the central archives in Xianyang. He also ordered the execution of a number of problematic scholars. Many details of Qin Shi Huang's book burning and burying alive of scholars remain controversial and are beyond the scope of this video. But the bottom line is that he did try hard to limit the spread of potentially dangerous ideas. In regards to the sword, Qin Shi Huang ordered weapons from across China to be confiscated and shipped to Xianyang, where they were melted down and remade into twelve large bronze statues. Even more notoriously than the burning of books and the burying alive of scholars. Qin Shi Huang conscripted large numbers of people to work on three massive construction projects. 
the linking together of segments of pre-existing border walls to form the first Great Wall, a massive palace complex named Lepang Palace, and a lavish mausoleum next to Mount Li, not far to the east of Xianyang. Of these three mega-projects, the Great Wall was at least intended as a public good, but the other two projects were commissioned to satisfy the first emperor's selfish desires. Lepang Palace was a massive palace complex built outside of Xianyang. Although it was never finished, and few details about it are known today, this has not stopped ancient Chinese writers from filling in the gaps to the point that Lepang Palace has become synonymous with the irresponsible luxury that Chinese emperors saw for themselves. One of the most famous writings about Lepang Palace was a Fu, an ornate style of writing that combines poetry and prose by the scholar and poet Du Mu, who lived during the Tang Dynasty in the 800s AD. The Lepang Palace Fu opens with shock and awe. Liu Wang Bi, Si Hai Yi, Shu Shan Wu, Lepang Chu. The six kings end, China unites. The mountains of Shu are cut barren. Lepang emerges. From there, it describes a borderline fantastical complex that spread from Mount Li all the way to Xianyang, with structures so tall that they block the sun. Every five steps is a building, every ten steps a pavilion. The palace is so big that different parts have their own climates. Women from the six states were brought to serve as concubines to the emperor, and even after many years of living in the palace, they have not yet even met him. The mausoleum of Qin Shi Huang was even more outrageous than Lepang Palace. Situated below the slopes of Mount Li, construction began shortly after Qin Shi Huang became the king of Qin and remained unfinished when he died in 210 BC. The surface structures of the mausoleum were enclosed within an outer wall over 2 kilometers long and almost 1 kilometer wide. Inside the outer wall was an inner wall, and inside the inner wall, still standing, is the pyramid-shaped mound of the mausoleum almost 50 meters tall, about one-third the height of the Great Pyramid at Giza. The surface structures included large palaces and gardens, whereas the tomb underneath the pyramid is supposed to be filled with treasures from across its empire, accumulated over many years, along with a relief map of China with flowing mercury to represent the rivers and the eastern sea, and with primed crossbows to shoot at tomb intruders. In 1974, local farmers discover pieces of the terracotta army, and to this date, over 8,000 life-size statues of soldiers have been excavated, along with various other discoveries such as bronze chariots. When the statues of the terracotta army were first excavated, they displayed colorful layers of paint that almost immediately oxidized, leaving behind the bare terracotta we see today. This is a strong reminder that as much as archaeology satisfies our curiosity to learn more about the past, it very often requires acts of destruction to carry out, and the safest place for artifacts to stay is usually underground. With this said, multidisciplinary research has been ongoing to find ways to prevent this type of damage from taking place in the future. The Terracotta Army occupies only a small portion of the overall mausoleum complex, most of which remains unexcavated. Exploratory work on the tomb mound itself has revealed a perimeter wall 460 by 400 meters, or about 26 FIFA-sized football fields, and most research suggests that this wall has suffered minimal damage from looters. Remote sensing has even identified a central area inside with high concentrations of mercury, giving credence to ancient records about the mercury relief map. 
Because of these findings, there's optimism from archaeologists that the tomb chamber, along with its treasures, have avoided significant looting. Although we cannot know for sure until the site were actually to be excavated. A full excavation of the mausoleum would be the ultimate fantasy come true for history lovers, but doing so prematurely would also be irresponsible, not the least because the mercury could potentially contaminate the surrounding regions. And the chances of the tomb being excavated in the foreseeable future is as good as zero, as it should be. The unprecedented ambition of Qin Shi Huang led to a great deal of suffering among conquered peoples who would have resented his rule anyway, even if some elements of Qin Dynasty cruelty were likely propaganda invented by its enemies. Massive rebellions against the Qin Dynasty broke out after the death of Qin Shi Huang. In the winter of 207-206 BC, rebel armies under the command of Liu Bang and Xiang Yu, who both came from the former southern state of Chu, occupied Guangzhou in quick succession, ending the Qin Dynasty. Liu Bang arrived first and attempted to establish peaceful rule in Guangzhou, only for Xiang Yu to arrive after him with a much larger army to take control of the region. Xiang Yu, blinded by his hatred of the Qin Dynasty, brutally sacked Xianyang and burned it to the ground. The fires of Xiang Yu were supposed to have lasted three months and destroyed not only Xianyang, but also Lepang Palace and the surface buildings of Qin Shi Huang's mausoleum. An advisor recommended that Xiang Yu establish himself in Guangzhou because of its advantageous geography. Xiang Yu, who was very much attached to his homeland in Chu, refused to do so, explaining that to not return home after becoming rich and powerful is like walking at night in a silk rope. Nobody would know. The advisor, frustrated, cursed out at Xiang Yu, saying that you people from Chu are like monkeys dressed in human clothes. The undertone of this comment is that bigotry against Chu, whose people were still often considered barbarians by those living elsewhere in China, was still quite common at the time. Xiang Yu did not take the insult well and ordered the advisor boiled to death. Xiang Yu decided to go home to Chu to establish his capital at Pengcheng, modern-day Xuzhou. He took on the title the Hegemon King of West Chu and redivided China into a number of feudal states under his suzerainty. Although later historians pretty much universally condemned this as a short-sighted move, perhaps doing so made much more sense back then. A unified China under centralized rule was still a foreign concept to most people in China at the time, and having the different regions of China be ruled by local leaders, all overseen by a hegemon, simply seemed like the reasonable way of doing things. Xiang Yu divided the core Qin Dynasty territory in Guangzhou into three states, each under the rule of a surrendered Qin general who was made king. Because of this, one of the many nicknames for modern-day Shanxi province became San Qin, or the Three Qins. Xiang Yu saw Liu Bang as a rival, and so appointed Liu Bang the king of the remote, mountainous southwestern region south of the Qin Mountains as far away from the rest of China as possible. Liu Bang's state was based out of the region of Hanzhong, literally, middle of the Han, named after the Han River that flowed through it, and so was also named Han. As Liu Bang marched south with his army across the Qin Mountains in the summer of 206 BC, he ordered the Zhandaos, translated into English as gallery roads, essentially narrow wooden paths attached to the side of steep slopes, to be burned down, both to defend against potential attacks from the Three Qins, and also to falsely signify to Xiang Yu that he had no intention of breaking out of the southwest. 
Xiang Yu immediately became bogged down fighting against other kings that did not appreciate his hegemony, and Liu Bang, just a few months after being exiled to Hanzhong, launched a surprise attack through the main mountain road crossing the Qin Mountains against San Pass. In the fall of 206 BC, to quickly occupy the city of Chencang, immediately to the north of San Pass. From Chencang, Liu Bang then easily conquered the three Qins to occupy all of Guangzhou. Liu Bang's surprise attack against Chencang gave name to an idiom, Andu Chencang, meaning to secretly pass through Chencang. This is usually combined into a longer phrase, Mingxiu Zhandao, Andu Chencang, or to openly rebuild the Zhandaos while secretly passing through Chencang. The premise of this phrase is that Liu Bang ordered his soldiers to rebuild the Zhandaos in the open as a diversion before secretly sending the bulk of his army to attack Chencang. And the phrase essentially means to show your enemies one thing, but then to do something else. This interpretation of the story also became one of the 36 stratagems, a list of tactics and deceptions used to outsmart one's enemies. But as appealing as the story is, it did not happen. Rebuilding the Zhandaos would have just prematurely alerted the rulers of the three Qins that Liu Bang was up to something, and with how steep the terrains along the Zhandaos were, what was Liu Bang going to do? Like actually use them? The story of Liu Bang rebuilding the Zhandaos is a later dramatization from the Yuan Dynasty around the 1300s AD, around the same time that many of the stories in the novel The Romance of the Three Kingdoms were also dramatized. With the geographical security that Guan Zhong provided him, Liu Bang fought a war against Xiang Yu known as the Chu Han Contention, finally defeating Xiang Yu in 202 BC. He declared himself the emperor of a new dynasty named the Han Dynasty, and, among various titles, became most widely known in history as Emperor Gaozu of the Han Dynasty. Emperor Gaozu, like Xiang Yu before him, also wanted to abandon Guangzhou to build his capital further east, in this case at the traditional eastern Zhou dynasty capital at Luoyang, which was much more centrally located than Guangzhou. Several advisors, citing the geographical advantages of Guangzhou, managed to change Liu Bang's mind, although not calling Liu Bang a monkey probably helped their arguments. In their words, Guangzhou is protected on the northern, western, and southern sides by mountains. During times of peace, goods from across the empire could be shipped up the Yellow and Wei rivers to Guangzhou. And during times of war, an army based out of Guangzhou could march out of it to defeat the emperor's enemies. Since the Qin dynasty capital at Xianyang was already in ruins, Liu Bang was forced to build a new capital city south of the Wei River at a site named Chang'an. The name Chang'an means eternal peace, certainly an auspicious name for a new capital city. The Han Dynasty ruled for 400 years, from 202 BC to 220 AD, and was interrupted by an interregnum that lasted from 9 to 25 AD, after which the re-established Han Dynasty moved the capital to Luoyang, to the east of Chang'an. As a result of this, the first half of the Han Dynasty, with its capital at Chang'an, became more specifically known in history as the Western Han Dynasty, whereas the second half of the Han Dynasty became more specifically known in history as the Eastern Han Dynasty. At the beginning of the Western Han Dynasty, Emperor Gaozu was faced with the same existential question that his predecessor had also faced. How could someone, anyone really, rule such a large empire effectively? Qin Shi Huang tried to create a centralized state ruling out of Guangzhou, which clearly did not work. Xiang Yu took the opposite approach and tried to recreate the prior system of decentralized states, 
which failed even more spectacularly. Emperor Gaozu learned from both of their mistakes and adopted a hybrid system. He re-established the centralized system of commanderies that Qin Shi Huang had instituted. But for most of the eastern and southern territories far away from Chang'an, he appointed semi-autonomous local princes. Many of the princes, who were either Emperor Gaozu's former generals or former enemies who had surrendered to Emperor Gaozu, soon became rebellious, and the advantageous geography of Guanzhong gave Emperor Gaozu the stability needed to defeat them. By the time Emperor Gaozu died in 195 BC, most of the local princes had been replaced by members of the imperial family, who, at least in theory, should be much more loyal to the central government. The proximity of Chang'an to the frontiers did mean that the Han dynasty faced especially heavy pressures from the nomadic Xiongnu, which had just reorganized into a powerful confederacy. To maintain its survival, the early Han dynasty emperors swallowed their pride and made peace treaties with the Xiongnu, sending princesses to the Xiongnu in marriage alliances, along with large amounts of treasure, as well as opening up trading posts along the frontier. Border defenses like the Great Wall were also heavily defended. But despite all of this, the Xiongnu still repeatedly broke their treaty obligations to launch raids deep into Han Dynasty territory, including the outskirts of Chang'an in 166 BC, and a large military presence around the capital was constantly needed to keep it safe. The mountain passes, fortifications, and large army around Chang'an did not just protect the Han emperors outward against the Xiongnu, but also inward against the ambitions of the eastern princes. Emperor Wen of the Han Dynasty, who ruled from 180 to 157 BC, was a wily politician who successfully outmaneuvered the ambitions of the princes, but his son, Emperor Jing, was much more politically inexperienced. In response to Emperor Jing's clumsy efforts at centralization, a number of princes allied in 154 BC to launch a rebellion known as the Rebellion of the Seven States. The large army stationed around the capital marched eastward out of Guanzhong and easily put down the rebellion in only three months. The powers of the states greatly diminished after the rebellion. To rule over the eastern territories, the western Han dynasty emperors used a carrot and stick approach, and to this end, the physical distance separating Chang'an from the east again proved to be a feature, not a bug. Large numbers of wealthy, well-connected people from Shandong, who may potentially become sources of trouble, such as the descendants of the royal families of the former eastern states, were forcibly resettled around Chang'an, although the forced resettlement was generally promoted as a positive thing. As successive Western Han Dynasty emperors built their mausoleums in the countryside around Chang'an, new counties were also established around the mausoleums, and the eastern elites were commonly resettled in these counties. It became quite prestigious for people from across the empire to resettle in these wealthy, newly developed satellite cities of Chang'an, even if they had to give up their ties to their home regions to do so. The resettled peoples from across the empire gradually gained a new sense of identity centered around the capital city, growing the power and cultural projections of Chang'an even more. Over time, the older regional identities such as Chu or Qi or Qin gave way to a new shared identity under the Han Dynasty, and it is for this reason that ethnic Chinese people are still widely referred to as Han Chinese to this day. 
Chang'an, as well as its predecessor Xianyang, played the central role in facilitating this transition, and for this alone, its status as one of the great cities in Chinese history is secured, even if the most splendid periods in its history were yet to come. The prosperity under Empress Wen and Jing paved the way for the reign of Emperor Wu, who ruled for 54 years from 141 BC to 87 BC. He was one of the longest reigning Chinese monarchs and easily one of the most consequential. His posthumous name Wu, meaning martial in Chinese, describes his military successes, the defeat of the Xiongnu as well as the expansion of his empire northward into the Korean peninsula and southward all the way to what is now northern Vietnam. He also launched military excursions into the western regions, eventually opening up trade routes to Central Asia. Starting with the reign of Emperor Wu, Chang'an became an international city as trade along the Silk Road connected China to Central Asia and beyond. But despite the splendor that Chang'an enjoyed during this time, its weaknesses as a capital city were also beginning to emerge. Chang'an was simply too isolated from the rest of China. This isolation had been beneficial to the early Han dynasty, but as the empire grew and became more integrated, the isolation simply placed the emperors too far away from most of their subjects. This was especially problematic because even though the Chinese population grew rapidly during the Western Han dynasty, most of this growth took place outside of Guangzhou, especially on the North China Plain along the lower banks of the Yellow River where wetlands were converted into some of the richest farmlands in the empire. These demographic shifts meant that Shandong was rapidly outpacing Shanxi in terms of population and wealth, and it was becoming harder for a central government based out of Shanxi, despite all of its geographical advantages, to exert its influence on the east. As early as the Qin Dynasty, large quantities of grain from the eastern plains already needed to be shipped to Guangzhou. The grain shipments continued during the Western Han Dynasty. Successive Western Han Dynasty emperors, especially Emperor Wu, instituted policies to mitigate the need for grain shipments. More irrigation canals were constructed to improve the productivity of farmlands in Guangzhou, and local farmers were encouraged to grow wheat, which was still an unpopular food option at the time, in addition to the main staple grain of foxtail millet. But ultimately, no matter how productive the farmlands in Guangzhou were, there just simply was not enough of it to support such a large concentration of civilians, government officials, and soldiers around the capital. To minimize delays in grain shipments caused by inconsistent water levels along the meandering Lower Wei River, Emperor Wu even went as far as ordering the digging of a canal that ran parallel to the Wei River. Emperor Wu also reorganized the administration of Guangzhou, the city of Chang'an itself was part of Chang'an County. However, the entire region of Guangzhou above Chang'an County was administered directly as a special capital district, as it happened during the Qin Dynasty. This special capital district was roughly the equivalent of a commandery in other parts of the empire. By the reign of Emperor Wu, the capital district had been divided into three smaller districts, known collectively as Sanfu, San means three, and Fu means in support of, as the three districts collectively surrounded and supported the functions of the capital city. San Fu, which I've seen translated into English as the three guardians, is now another one of the myriad of literary nicknames for the modern-day city of Xi'an. 
The Sanfu under Emperor Wu were Jingzhao, literally the capital district, which included the lands immediately around Chang'an, Zuoping Yi in the eastern Wei River Valley, and Youfufeng in the western Wei River Valley. The reason for this naming convention was because if we were to think of Guanzhong from the perspective of the emperor sitting on his throne, which would have been facing southward, then the map of Guanzhong should be flipped upside down with south on top, like this. And so left, or zuo, is synonymous with east, and right, or you is synonymous with west. Zuoping yi means ping yi to the left, and you fufeng means fufeng to the right. Indeed, left for east and right for west was an ancient Chinese naming convention. The governors of all three of the Sanfu had their headquarters inside the city walls of Chang'an. Of these three governorships, the metropolitan governorship of Jingzhao, known in Chinese as the Jingzhao Yin, was an especially prominent position since the holder had to work with the emperor and the central bureaucracy to oversee important functions around the capital city. One additional change that Emperor Wu instituted was abandoning the original Qin Dynasty Hangu Pass to establish a new Hangu Pass over 100 kilometers to the east, on the outskirts of the city of Luoyang. This pass was still named Hangu Pass, even if it was technically no longer located in the Hangu. The exact motives of Emperor Wu for doing so remain unclear, although there are a number of possible reasons. Shifting Hangu Pass eastward significantly increased the size of Guanzhong from beyond just the Wei River Valley, bringing more land area, which was incorporated into a new commandery, Hunong Commandery, under the emperor's close control. Although the new Hangu Pass was far less defensible than the original pass, especially since the southern branch of the road through the Xiao Mountains could simply bypass it, the growing integration of the empire meant that the lack of defense was less of a concern for Emperor Wu than it would have been for his predecessors. And finally, the old Hangu Pass derived a large part of its importance from the fact that it blocked the only road in the region that chariots could pass through. But as cavalry gradually replaced war chariots by the Han Dynasty, the old Hangu Pass was becoming less useful, especially since the forests on top of the tableland in which it passed through were gradually being cleared anyway. As an aside for the sake of completeness, Hedong Commandery, especially the counties immediately to the east of the Yellow River, was also sometimes considered part of Guanzhong. From a purely geographical standpoint, the name Guanzhong just means the land inside the passes, Hangu, Wu, San, and Xiao, or basically the Wei River Valley. And so in this sense, Hedong would not be part of Guanzhong. But as Guanzhong became associated with the prestige of the capital city at Chang'an, it also made sense for people who live near its borders to stretch the definition of Guanzhong as much as possible, especially since in early medieval Chinese society, where someone's family came from was one of the most critical factors in determining their political prospects. In this sense, we can think of the figurative Guanzhong as all the neighboring lands of Chang'an that came under the direct influence of the city. A number of the most powerful families in medieval China came from just outside of the Wei River Valley, but were still considered to be from Guanzhong. This included the Yang clan of Hongnong, which produced the emperors of the Sui dynasty, as well as the Pei, Liu, and Xue clans from Hedong, all of which were extremely influential during their heydays. Anyway, back to our main narrative. 
Chang'an expanded significantly during the reigns of the Western Han Dynasty emperors, including that of Emperor Wu. When Chang'an was first chosen as the capital city around 200 BC, the city mainly just consisted of two palaces. Weiyang Palace and Changle Palace, built on the slopes of a tableland formation overlooking the Wei River. The city walls came later, but because they had to be built around pre-existing buildings and natural geomorphic features, the resulting city was irregularly shaped. The city walls of Western Han Dynasty Chang'an, with a total circumference of almost 26 kilometers, enclosed an area 36 square kilometers. Or in modern terms, about 60% the size of modern-day Manhattan. Inside the walls, the streets of Chang'an were laid out in a grid plan, as was the convention for ancient Chinese cities. Weiyang and Changle palaces still occupy the high grounds on the south side of the city, and to their north, three more smaller palaces were constructed over time. One rather surprising addition to Changle Palace were the twelve bronze statues that Qin Shi Huang had commissioned. They had somehow survived the fall of the Qin Dynasty and the sack of Xianyang, and these monoliths, each estimated to be thirty tons in weight, were brought over from the ruins of Xianyang and placed inside Changle Palace. Palaces such as Changle and Weiyang palaces far dwarf later palaces such as the Forbidden City in Beijing, and for good reason. Because traditional Chinese buildings were made out of wood, the limiting factor for the size of Chinese palaces was not engineering skills, but rather the availability of timber, especially large ones to use for the main columns of the great halls. By the time the Forbidden City in Beijing was constructed in the early 1400s, pretty much all of the old-growth forests in China had been destroyed, and the wooden beams used for some of the columns had to be transported from thousands of kilometers away in Yunnan, in the southwestern corner of China, at astronomical human and financial costs. During the Han Dynasty, this was still barely an issue. Scattered among the palace complexes were various other government infrastructures, such as the residences of government officials, government offices, temples. And the central arsenal, the palaces and their supporting infrastructures took up about two thirds of the city's area, forcing the civilian quarters, along with the markets, to be restricted to the northern tip of the city. This space was clearly too small to serve the needs of the capital city of a large empire, and over time, much larger civilian areas, along with facilities such as pottery workshops and government mints, were built outside of the main walls of Chang'an. All protected by their own outer walls. The census of 2 A.D., taken near the end of the Western Han Dynasty, almost a century after the death of Emperor Wu, recorded a quarter of a million people living in Chang'an. But rather uniquely for an ancient city, Chang'an under the Western Han Dynasty was also surrounded by a ring of highly developed satellite cities that developed around the emperor's mausoleums. By the end of the Western Han Dynasty, there were a number of mausoleum settlements dotting the countryside around Chang'an. Many of the wealthiest, most powerful people in the capital lived not in Chang'an itself, but rather in one of these mausoleum settlements. The most significant mausoleum settlement was, no surprise, that of Emperor Wu's mausoleum, named Maoling or Mao Mausoleum. By the end of the Western Han Dynasty, the population of Mao Mausoleum was at 277,000, exceeding that of even Chang'an itself. Emperor Wu, despite all of his accomplishments, became increasingly extravagant towards the end of his life. 
All the luxuries in the empire were not enough for him, and he sought immortality for himself. It was believed that drinking fresh morning dew could help him become a deity, and so to collect the morning dew, Emperor Wu ordered the construction of a platform over 80 meters tall, with a large bronze statue placed on top of the platform. The statue held a bronze plate 45 meters in diameter, and on the plate was a large cup made of jade to collect the morning dew for Emperor Wu to drink. Even though Emperor Wu ultimately had no luck with immortality, he still tried to take as much with him as he could on his way out. His mausoleum, like Qin Shi Huang's mausoleum, also had a 50-meter-tall pyramid with a tomb chamber underneath. The construction of Emperor Wu's Mao mausoleum was ongoing throughout his long reign, and every year a significant amount of treasures were set aside to be buried with him. By the time Emperor Wu died, so much treasures had accumulated over his 54-year-long reign that it could not all fit inside the tomb chamber. The wars and extravagance of Emperor Wu pushed the Han Dynasty to the verge of mass rebellion. But luckily, his successors, Emperors Zhao and Xuan, stabilized the empire and preserved Emperor Wu's legacy. But with time, the power of the imperial family still declined until the throne was usurped by a consort king named Wang Mang in 9 AD. The rule of Wang Mang was disastrous, leading to peasant rebellions and then civil wars that led to the restoration of the Han Dynasty under Liu Xiu, a distant member of the imperial family. Liu Xiu became posthumously known as Emperor Guangwu, the Distinguished Martial Emperor, for his unique achievements in restoring the Han Dynasty. Between 23 and 26 AD, during the Han Dynasty interregnum, Chang'an and Guanzhong exchanged hands multiple times. The rebels that occupied the region looted the Western Han Dynasty mausoleums and went as far as burning down most of Chang'an. In part because of this destruction, Emperor Guangwu moved the capital eastward to Luoyang, which was closer to the geographical and economic center of China anyway. Although some of the palaces in Chang'an were repaired and monuments such as Qin Shi Huang's bronze statues remained in the city, much of Chang'an was still left in disrepair, and the city became just a shadow of its former self. Nonetheless, Chang'an maintained a special status of being the western capital of the Eastern Han Dynasty, and Guanzhong was still administered as the Sanfu rather than as commanderies. Although the offices for Zuo Pingyi and Yu Fufeng were finally moved out of Chang'an city to their respective territories, the metropolitan governors of Jingzhao, the Jingzhaoyin, continued to serve important roles close to the emperors, who still at times visited the Han Dynasty temples and mausoleums around Chang'an. But as time went on, Guanzhong continued to decline. Throughout the Eastern Han Dynasty, various non-Han Chinese barbarian groups began migrating into Han Dynasty territories. This included branches of the Xiongnu, who had submitted to the Eastern Han Dynasty and were settling southwards, as well as Proto-Tibetan groups, the Qiang and the Di, who were migrating eastwards. The Qiang fought a series of brutal wars against the Eastern Han Dynasty throughout the century of the 100s AD. During which they also launched many devastating raids into Guangzhou. As more and more non-Han Chinese people settled in the regions around Guangzhou over time, Chang'an became an increasingly peripheral city in the Chinese world. The novel *The Romance of the Three Kingdoms* takes place against the backdrop of the wars between the Eastern Han Dynasty and the Qiang, and the devastation that Guangzhou had suffered before the start of the novel is partially why Chang'an and Guangzhou. Despite their overall importance in Chinese history, hardly feature in the novel. 
The general Dong Zhuo came from the northwestern frontier and made a name for himself in the wars against the Qiang, not to mention in putting down the Yellow Turban Rebellion of 184 AD, before occupying the capital city at Luoyang in 189, controlling the government, and then deposing one emperor and replacing him with another. In 190, governors from across eastern China joined forces to march against Luoyang, which was relatively exposed to invading armies. After suffering initial defeats, Dong Zhuo decided that he's had enough dealing with the petty politicians, since war is supposed to be an extension of politics anyway, and so looted Luoyang, burned the city to the ground, and relocated westward to Guanzhong to be closer to his home base. This time again, as was the case with the state of Qin during the Warring States period, the separation between Shanxi and Shandong easily kept Dong Zhuo safe from his external enemies and allowed him to turn a blind eye on what was going on in Shandong. But the flip side of the coin immediately reared its ugly head. The governors in Shandong, far removed from a central government to answer to, became warlords and began to fight against one another in the most densely populated part of China, leading to one of the bloodiest decades in Chinese history. Dong Zhuo began to run into money issues in Guangzhou, and so he, like the rebels of the Han Dynasty interregnum before him, played amateur archaeology by robbing Western Han Dynasty tombs. He also had 10 of the 12 bronze statues of Qin Shi Huang melted down and reused their bronze for coins. Dong Zhuo's rule in Guangzhou was brutal, and he was finally murdered by his general Lü Bu in 192. But unfortunately, Dong Zhuo's death did not improve things for the local inhabitants of Guangzhou. In the aftermath of Dong Zhuo's death, Chang'an was brutally sacked by the armies of Dong Zhuo's former generals. Much of Guangzhou was also devastated, and large numbers of people fled Guangzhou as refugees, especially to the south. In 196, the warlord Cao Cao, based out of the Central Plains, launched a westward expedition into Guangzhou. But instead of marching his army through Hangu Pass, Cao Cao took advantage of the fact that over the preceding five centuries, the Yellow River had deposited so much silt along the banks of the gorges at Samenxia that a narrow shoreline was beginning to form there. Cao Cao ordered a road to be built along this shoreline, bypassing Hangu Pass completely and immediately consigning it to the dustbins of history. In place of Hangu Pass, Cao Cao established a new pass, known as Tong Pass, on top of a tableland overlooking the confluence of the Wei and Yellow Rivers. Tong Pass remains the eastern gateway of Guangzhou. As Guangzhou continued to be depopulated because of wars, the Qiang and the Di began to settle in its outskirts. During the Three Kingdoms period, Chang'an was an important frontier city for the Cao Wei dynasty against the repeated northern expeditions of the Shu Han minister Zhuge Liang, who, tried as he did, could not break out of the natural defenses of the Qin mountains. In 226, Emperor Ming, the grandson of Cao Cao, became emperor of the Cao Wei dynasty. As Emperor Ming expanded the palaces in the capital city at Luoyang, he sent subordinates to Chang'an to bring back whatever treasures they could still find there. In an account that has merged with legend, Emperor Ming's subordinates tried to transport the two bronze statues of Qin Shi Huang, but eventually gave up because they were too heavy. They also dismantled the statue that Emperor Wu used to collect his morning dew. The bronze plate was mishandled and broke apart. The statue bearing quiet witness to the decay and despair about him and realizing that he was to be taken somewhere far away from his home, began to weep. The Tang Dynasty poet Li He wrote about this scene in perhaps his most famous lines. 
，衰兰送客咸阳道，天若有情天亦老。The withering orchids say goodbye to the travelers at Xianyang. If heaven could feel emotions, heaven too would grow old. Emperor Ming's dynasty, like those of the rulers whose treasures he tried to claim for himself, also did not last. A generation after the death of Emperor Ming, the Cao Wei dynasty was usurped by the Sima family, which established the Jin dynasty. By the time the Jin dynasty unified China again in 280, much of Chang'an was in ruins. Wild animals made their homes in the former palace grounds, overgrown with weeds, and all the inhabitants in Chang'an live out of just a small corner of the city inside its monstrous walls. Over the next few centuries, northern China became occupied by various barbarian groups. Large numbers of people across northern China, including Guanzhong, fled southward as refugees. With the region around Xiangyang being an especially popular destination for refugees from Guanzhong to settle in. Although Chang'an enjoyed brief heights during this period, for example, as the capital of the former Qin Dynasty, which ruled over all of northern China in the late 370s to early 380s, or as an early center of Buddhism in the first decade of the 400s under the later Qin Dynasty, it remained a fairly provincial city, with its glory days as the capital of vast empires becoming just faint memories. The fortunes of Chang'an finally revived in the mid 500s AD, when Chang'an became the capital of the Northern Zhou Dynasty. The Northern Zhou Dynasty was initially much weaker than its rival to the east, the Northern Qi Dynasty, and to survive, it instituted, among other policies, a system that gave households farmland allocations and tax exemptions in exchange for military service. Allowing Northern Zhou to develop a strong military in a rapid series of events that very few people at the time likely could have foreseen, Northern Zhou conquered Northern Qi in 577. The throne of Northern Zhou was then usurped by the Sui Dynasty in 581, and then the Sui Dynasty conquered the Southern Qin Dynasty in 589 to reunify China. Under the Sui Dynasty, Chang'an as well as Guanzhong suddenly returned to the spotlight as the center of a unified Chinese empire after a 550-year-long hiatus. Because the pre-existing Chang'an city was becoming quite run down after almost eight centuries of existence, Emperor Wen, the founding emperor of the Sui Dynasty, ordered in 582 the construction of a new planned city not far to the southeast, named Da Xing City, or literally the Great Prosperity City. Progress on Da Xing was so fast that the court moved there in 583, within one year of the project starting. Although construction in the city continued over the next several decades, the population of Chang'an was moved to Da Xing, and what little was left of Han Dynasty Chang'an remained as ruins. Grains again needed to be shipped to Chang'an. The previous canal from the time of Emperor Wu of the Han Dynasty had by then long ceased to exist, and so a new canal was dug along the course of the previous canal to connect Da Xing more directly to the Yellow River. During the reign of Emperor Wen of the Sui Dynasty, who ruled until 604, most of the grains were shipped from the Lower Yellow River region. But because this was quite expensive, since the ships needed to pass through the gorges at Samenxia, Emperor Yang, the successor of Emperor Wen, simply moved the capital eastward to Luoyang. 
Emperor Yang also ordered the construction of various other canals that would together form the Grand Canal, so that grains from the Yangtze River Delta, which was becoming the wealthiest region in China, could be shipped to Luoyang and then onwards to Chang'an. Emperor Yang is now remembered as another tyrant in the mold of Qin Shi Huang because his mega-projects, which included the planned city of Luoyang, the Grand Canal, the reconstruction of the Great Wall, and perhaps most costly of all, several catastrophic military expeditions against the Korean state of Gogoryeo, quickly drove his empire to exhaustion. Widespread rebellions broke out during his reign, and he was eventually murdered by his guards in 618. By then, his maternal cousin Li Yuan, based out of Jinyang, modern-day Taiyuan, had already rebelled and occupied Daxing. With Emperor Yang dead, Li Yuan declared himself the emperor of a new dynasty, the Tang Dynasty, in 618, and then utilized the geographical advantages of Guanzhong to again quickly unify China. Under the Tang Dynasty, the city, whose name was changed from Daxing back to Chang'an, reached perhaps the most splendid period in its history. The early Tang Dynasty emperors, especially Emperor Taizong, who ruled from 626 to 649, utilized their powerful militaries to defeat their foreign rivals and to launch military expeditions into Central Asia, allowing trade to again flourish along the Silk Road and turning Chang'an again into an international city. Chang'an was renovated multiple times during the Tang Dynasty to reach its final form. A regular grid 9.7 kilometers long from east to west and 8.6 kilometers long from north to south for a total circumference of 36 kilometers, with 12 city gates, three on each side. The total area of the city, including Daming Palace that was constructed early in the Tang Dynasty, was 87 square kilometers. Or if we are to continue to use our units in Manhattans, a little less than one and a half Manhattans. It had 14 major east-west boulevards and 11 north-south boulevards, with the widest central north-south boulevard named Zhuquie Street, or the Red Sparrow Street, approximately 150 meters across about as wide as the widest street in the world today. The palace complex was on the north side of the city and separated by walls from the rest of the city. Outside of the palace complexes, the rest of the city was divided into 108 wards, each surrounded by its own walls. Housing for both civilians and government officials, as well as monasteries, were located inside these wards. Commerce was centered around the East Market and the West Market. Multiple canals brought water into the city, both for human consumption and to beautify the environment, and gardens dotted the city. Entertainment options were plenty, including circuses, polo, which was an extremely popular sport during the Tang Dynasty among the elites, and an ancient Chinese version of football known as Cuju. Buddhism thrived in Chang'an during this period, although other religions, including Taoism, as well as foreign ones such as Zoroastrianism, Nestorian Christianity, and Islam, were also practiced. Chang'an was so large that it was administered as two counties, with Chang'an County west of Zhuquie Street and Wanyan County, literally the 10,000 years county, east of Zhuquie Street. Both counties, in turn, were administered under Jingzhao Prefecture. And finally, the city served as the western capital, or Xijing, of the entire Tang Dynasty, since Luoyang was Dongjing, the eastern capital. Chang'an and Wanyan counties were estimated to have 80,000 households, or half a million people. If we were to add in the roughly 100,000 soldiers stationed around the capital, along with the imperial household, Buddhist monks and nuns, 
and foreigners, including traders from Central Asia and beyond. Then the total population of Chang'an reached 1 million at its height during the Tang Dynasty. Chang'an continued to depend heavily on grain shipments from the Yangtze River Delta along the Grand Canal. These shipments were very expensive, and delays could easily jack up grain prices in Chang'an. Famines still sometimes broke out in Chang'an. Even during the Golden Age of the Tang Dynasty in the late 600s to early 700s, the food situation in Chang'an would sometimes get so bad that the court, along with the central government, had to temporarily relocate eastward to Luoyang to be closer to the granaries there. By the mid-700s, Chang'an had been at peace for over a century. The city was awash in wealth, and some of the greatest Chinese poets, including Li Bai, Du Fu, Wang Wei, and Meng Haoran, spent time in the city and immortalized its prosperity in their poems. Unfortunately, the Tang Dynasty court under Emperor Xuanzong was growing increasingly complacent. Emperor Xuanzong became emperor in 712, in his late 20s, in the prime of his life, and was initially quite diligent, ushering in a particularly prosperous period in the 720s and 730s. But as he grew old, he, at least according to the traditional narratives, began to neglect his responsibilities, handed power to corrupt officials, and spent more and more time with his favorite concubine, Consort Yang, to enjoy the luxuries that his empire had to offer. In addition to the palaces around Chang'an, Emperor Xuanzong and Consort Yang enjoyed spending time in the winter at the hot springs next to Mount Li, where a palace complex, known as Huaqing Palace, developed around the hot springs. According to a popular story, because Consort Yang spent her childhood in modern-day Sichuan province, one of her favorite foods was lichis, which only grew in the warmer climate of the south. Emperor Xuanzong had special couriers deliver fresh lychees from the Sichuan Basin through the Qin Mountains to Chang'an, with the lychees still fresh by the time they reached Consort Yang. Zhu wrote, the most direct route through the Qin Mountains to Chang'an also became named the lychee road for this reason. Not only did court politics become increasingly chaotic by the early 750s, but the military system which the Tang Dynasty had relied on for its earlier successes had by then fallen apart. And the militias that were supposed to serve only on short campaigns during times of war were being replaced by professional soldiers and mercenaries. The generals on the frontiers, many of whom were non-Han Chinese, grew increasingly powerful, and in 755, one of them, An Lushan, based out of Fanyang, modern-day Beijing, launched a rebellion. An Lushan's army easily captured Luoyang and approached Tong Pass. The Tang Dynasty amassed an army 200,000 strong to defend Tong Pass against An Lushan's army. The defenders initially refused to engage the rebels in battle, frustrating An Lushan to no end. But after months of stalemate in front of Tong Pass, all while Tang Dynasty armies elsewhere were making rapid progress against the rebels, Emperor Xuanzong snatched defeat from the jaws of victory by ordering the defenders of Tong Pass to attack. The Tang army was annihilated in an ambush, and afterwards An Lushan easily captured Tong Pass and then Chang'an. Emperor Xuanzong fled Chang'an before An Lushan's army and was forced to abdicate to his son, who became Emperor Suzong. Emperor Xuanzong spent the rest of his life in lonely retirement, somehow managing to hang on until 762 into his late 70s. 
Although the Anlushan Rebellion was eventually put down by 763, the Tang Dynasty survived for another century and a half in a reduced state. Its western territories were occupied by the Tibetan Empire and the Uyghur Khaganate, whereas many regions away from the capital, especially Hebei, which had been the most supportive of Anlushan's rebellion, came under the rule of semi-autonomous military governors with questionable loyalties to the emperors. The key priority of the central government during this period was to hold direct control over Guangzhou, maintain enough power projection to keep the Grand Canal open, and then push back against the military governors when able. Although Chang'an fell from the heights it had reached prior to the Anlushan Rebellion, it remained a global metropolis with arts, literature, and religions such as Buddhism continuing to flourish there. After the reign of Emperor Xuanzong, Huaqing Palace was rarely visited by later Tang Dynasty emperors and gradually fell into ruins. It was renovated into a garden in the 1800s and has remained a popular tourist attraction to this day. In a unique juxtaposition of ancient and modern history, in 1936, on the eve of the Second Sino-Japanese War, which went on to become the Chinese theater of World War II, Chiang Kai-shek. Or Jiang Jieshi in Chinese, the leader of the Chinese nationalists, personally flew to Xi'an to direct an offensive against the communists based out of northern Shanxi province. In an event that became known as the Xi'an Incident, Chen Kai-shek, while staying at the Huaqing Pools, was kidnapped by his generals and eventually forced to agree to a unified front with the communists against the Japanese. We can still see the bullet holes from the kidnapping on the walls of the garden buildings today. The Tang Dynasty finally fell apart in the late 800s. Massive rebellions broke out in the 870s, and in the winter of 880 to 881, the rebel leader Huang Chao marched against Tong Pass. Huang Chao's army easily overwhelmed the significantly outnumbered defenders at Tong Pass, and then went on to capture Chang'an. Chang'an exchanged hands multiple times over the next few years. Both sides committed atrocities. Although after Huang Chao counterattacked to recapture Chang'an in 881, he ordered the wholesale slaughter of the city's inhabitants. The Tang Dynasty still managed to rally just enough support to defeat Huang Chao's rebellion by 884, but afterwards it was as good as dead. It lost authority over the military governors, and some of the worst warlordism in Chinese history broke out. Over the next few decades, Guangzhou was repeatedly overrun by warlords. In 904, the warlord Zhu Wen, who was based out of the Central Plains like Cao Cao before him, decided to move the court eastward to be closer to his home base. On his way out, Zhu Wen ordered the buildings in Chang'an dismantled so that their wood could be floated down the Wei River to be recycled in construction projects downstream. The population of Chang'an was also forcibly marched east. Zhu Wen was the reason why hardly any of Tang Dynasty Chang'an remains for us to see today. Two brick pagodas, the Great Wild Goose Pagoda and the Small Wild Goose Pagoda, survived Zhu Wen's destruction and remain two key symbols of the city to this day. Although they have required restoration over the centuries, there also is the Beiling, the Steely Forest, established almost 1,000 years ago to preserve local steelies. Including those containing calligraphy from some of the greatest Chinese calligraphers ever, such as Yan Zhenqing. Wooden structures such as Da Ming Palace, though, only survive as parts of archaeological digs, with perhaps modern-day reconstructions nearby.
Although Chang'an would soon be rebuilt after Zhu Wen's destruction, the new city was just a tiny fraction of its former self. By the 900s AD, the Chinese population and economic center of gravity had shifted so permanently to the east and south that Chang'an could no longer be any more than a regional city. Centuries of habitat destruction, soil degradation, and desertification in Guangzhou and the surrounding regions also made sure of that. As a matter of fact, Zhu Wen likely made the highly unusual move of recycling the wooden beams in Chang'an because by the end of the Tang Dynasty, pretty much all of the old growth forests in northern China had already been cut down, and he needed to use the wood for construction projects elsewhere. During the Northern Song Dynasty, which ruled China from 960 to 1127, Chang'an remained a regional city near the frontier, although it still retained the name Jingzhao as a nod to its former glory. The relative lack of importance of Chang'an did not change much after it was conquered in the 1100s by the Jin Dynasty, whose rulers were the ancestors to the Manchus, nor did its importance change much after it was conquered in the 1200s by the Mongols, who would go on to establish the Yuan Dynasty. During the Yuan Dynasty around 1300, a poet named Zhang Yanghao traveled through Tong Pass, and reflecting on the countless generations of prosperity and decline this region had experienced, and the sufferings of the people that had lived through them all, wrote about this region. The peaks press together, the waves rage, the mountains and rivers enfold the road through Tong Pass. I look towards the western capital, my emotions grow heavy. I grieve that on these former lands of Qin and Han, countless palaces have all turned to dust. When dynasties rise, the people suffer. When dynasties fall, the people suffer. In the late 1300s, Emperor Hongwu, the founding emperor of the Ming Dynasty, which at the time was based out of the Yangtze River Delta around modern-day Nanjing, conquered northern China from the Mongol Yuan Dynasty. Emperor Hongwu dreamed of restoring China to the glory of the Han and Tang Dynasties, and so heavily considered moving the capital to Chang'an. But after conducting preliminary site explorations, it became clear that times have changed too much for Chang'an to again serve as the capital city of a unified Chinese empire. The city did undergo expansion under Emperor Hongwu, and its current city walls, which are one of the city's main attractions, were built during this time period on top of the ruins of the Sui and Tang dynasties Chang'an. The prefecture administering the city was also renamed Xi'an Prefecture, which remains the name of the city to this day. The city itself remained under the direct administration of Chang'an County, but due to Chinese naming conventions, Xi'an gradually replaced Chang'an in day-to-day -day usage. Nonetheless, in the modern urban area of Xi'an, there remains a Chang'an district that is directly descended from Chang'an County, founded by Emperor Gaozu 2200 years ago. One final blip in Xi'an's fortunes took place at the end of the Ming Dynasty when the rebel leader Li Zicheng, who came from Shanxi province, tried to establish his capital at Xi'an. Li Zicheng was quickly defeated by the invading Manchus between 1644 and 1645, and his attempted dynasty ultimately went nowhere. Today, Xi'an still has the most populated urban area in northwestern China and remains one of the country's most important cities.
But all this is ultimately still some ways off from the height the city had once enjoyed. Xi'an and its surrounding countryside, though, are some of the most widely visited parts of China due to its rich history. Even if only a tiny, tiny fraction of ancient sites remain today for us to see. So much of Chinese history is ultimately inextricably linked to Xi'an that retelling the story of Xi'an is almost analogous to retelling all of Chinese history itself.